Exactly that, matey. Exactly that. It's like for me, being Asian or orange or purple, whatever colour you make be, it's about what you know about the industry and there's no shortcuts to it. There are more Asians involved in football than you would expect. There are nowhere near as many Asians involved in football as there should be. Join us on the Our Game 2 podcast as we celebrate the ones that are and discuss the ones that aren't. Hi Z, so today is Remembrance Wednesday, it's Remembrance Day, sorry, November the 11th. It's the day after Greg Clark made his comments yesterday, which initially led to an apology and then further along in the day, he then resigned. What are your thoughts on what happened yesterday in his comments? Well, where should we begin? Uh, first of all, I think he should have resigned three years ago when he dismissed accusations of institutional racism at the FA as fluff. And that was in a parliamentary uh, um, uh, committee debate. And that were red flag that he's got a, a no filter on him that is detrimental because we always say that words are weapons right and his words are detrimental and we've seen that yesterday and what what really shocked me about yesterday was his statement afterwards not so much what he said because he's got previous form but the statement of saying I, I've been thinking about stepping down for some time to make way for a new chair uh, two weeks after he released a diversity code and then you have in one day you've just managed to offend every every possible group um, in one goal, and you're you're not remorseful at all. It's like it's kind of like listening to Donald Trump make statement after statement, and you're like, which one should I be shocked about? You know, like yesterday I received at least one message where he's talked used the word coloured. And um, that was a shocking thing. Then I received a, a video snippet about what he mentioned about uh, overrepresentation in the IT department, the FA being, being South Asian and that being a, a career choice. That was shocking. And then I was, a, I was on, on a client visit. And then when I just read the whole transcript of what had been said, I was like, I don't know which bit to be shocked about. It was, it was, it was so much to take on. But then his statement, at the end, it just shows that just I don't think there's any remorse there at all. Uh, now, with the FA having had you know released their diversity champion the diversity code a couple of weeks back, um, it is that it is what he said. Someone who's got a senior role just undermining the work that the FA are saying that they're trying to do or perceive you know, perceived to do. And you know, the FA, FA have taken a lot of lumps over the years for not doing enough, uh, especially when it comes to the, the, the Asian community. They've done these road shows and you're like, well, where's the action? But this has come from someone at the top while they're trying to champion diversity and inclusion. And it makes me think, and we've always, you know, you, suspe- you, sus- you suspect that this, these thoughts that still exist in people in the upper echelons of most industries but specifically to football as well but you were like well how can we prove it because something was said behind closed doors but this is said in the open and said it so nonchalantly like there was no uh, thought process where he's trying to backtrack or or, or hide his thoughts it's like mate you've just said this is what it is it's hard to say I'm shocked but I'm shocked and it's it's hard to say I didn't think this was what 
certain people thought about because we've seen evidence of it right there and someone who was in a senior position. It's right that he's gone. I, I, I think just, just, just like I said, when I read in his statement, I don't feel that there's any remorse or any apology at all. It's just because other people have pointed out that what you said is wrong. He doesn't himself believe that what he said is wrong because that would not be in his vocabulary. I'm assuming they've had the diversity training and unconscious bias training. They're trying to push this kind of, like we're talking about diversity called out, but within the the kind of the you know, the four walls of the FA, is are we to believe that these are this these could be the thoughts of others as well, especially in decision making um, positions? So, yeah, it's it, it's shocking, and that's that's my initial thoughts on it. And I think over time there might be more things that get released. But I also, on the other hand, have to think that there are good people within that organisation as well who are working towards or pushing towards change. And this is what they're battling against. And we kind of get insight of what they're fighting against. So they, when, when you speak to certain people within DFA who are championing diversity, you feel that their hearts and intentions are right. But look what they're faced up against. So, yeah. Um, I don't know what you think about it, Apu. My, I mean, first of all, my initial thought was he, yes, he's the chair of the FA, I know the FA is doing a lot to improve diversity and inclusion. We've had Dalon. We also know Kevin's working there. We know all the programs that are going on. But what this, what this made me realize was that he, as the chairman, is not involved in these discussions. If he was, he wouldn't, these were not slips of the tongues. These were his thought processes coming out. And it showed that. He's not having the conversations. He's delegating it to other people, which in some respects, that's what as a leader you should do. At the same time, given the power the FA has, not just in UK football, in world football, with the votes it's got with FIFA, etc. I think I can see why he resigned. I'm also deeply disappointed with the statement he made for resigning. I do wonder if, it would have been more powerful if he'd held his hands up, said, I made a mistake. I personally will now work to re-educate myself and I'll talk to the Asians, LGBT community, women as well, to understand why what I said was offensive and how what can be done at a higher level to build bridges. I think that would have been equally as powerful because yesterday the conversation became 90% about his use of the term coloured. That was the easy soundbite. And that's, that's where people went. And many of the responses were, why is he resigned over a term? That's a slip of the tongue, completely miss missing the fact that he'd said all these other things as well. Having said that he's now resigned. Let's see what happens with the FA. 90% of their board up until yesterday was, was white. There was only Rupinda Baines on there as the only Asian. There's not even a black person on the board of the FA, which given this, the day and age, 2020, it's shocking, really. But there you go. Yes, we'll we'll talk and we'll discuss this more later. OK, so now I'd like to introduce our guest for today as um, how should I put this? So. They've got a really bad reputation in the football industry. Can you guess what sort of people I'm talking about, Z? Referees. 
VAR? <laughs> what are we talking about here? Football agents. <laughs> Those guys. Priyash, <laughs> welcome to the show. How are you doing? Yes, very good, thank you. Lovely introduction there as well. I, I, I'd go with VAR there. <laughs> okay, I'm kidding. I have met you before and I can attest that you are, in fact, a lovely guy. So we've got with us now Priyash Upadhyaya, who is the director at One Click Sports Management. And you are a football agent. Is that right? Is that what you call yourself? Yeah, yes. Uh, I think the correct terminology is a FA intermediary now, uh, since like the laws were changed in 2015. But yeah, football agent, guide, mentor, you know, somebody to help players develop and get to that next level. Okay, fantastic. So I know your background's in property. How did you get into into being a football agent okay so um a bit of a crazy story here um is as if it was meant to be um around mid 2014 i got introduced to the player liaison at tottenham hotspur by one of by a mutual friend and uh, we started visiting the ground and gave me ideas after meeting a few footballers in the players lounge etc to start some concierge services maybe some property solutions um, for housing players and managers etc in the industry and um, you know that was the initial thought process of entering the sports industry because it's like with many other uh, you know guys or girls growing up in East London, football was a massive part of our upbringing and, you know, you, you chose your colours. A lot of them were uh, teams up north that, you know, you've got no intention of ever visiting like Manchester and Liverpool, but then you had your uh, Arsenal and local West Ham fans and you had your odd uh, Tottenham fans. So, that's that's who I am. I, I supported Tottenham, and I my journey started by starting a partnership with my club that I followed since a young age, and um, you know that was the initial idea. But then, as I said, it was meant to be. I had uh, Roberto Mancini's right hand guy walk into our East London office in Leighton, looking for a property to buy, and started a conversation with him. Um, that day when he walked in and by the end of it he had me on the phone to a guy called Martin Glover who was the sport director at the time at West Ham United under Sam Allardyce trying to negotiate a deal for Nemanja Vidic to go to West Ham uh, if Winston Reid left that coming January so that was a sort of an interesting uh, introduction into the football world it was like uh, you know, football manager or one of the championship manager games that Again, I played growing up, you know, so that was the introduction to it. And then um, things um, went on from there, really. Okay, fantastic. I, I'm listen, I'm a West Ham fan. I had no idea Vidic was ever a consideration for, for us, but there you go. That was, um, the, that was the January when Winston Reid was uh, linked with a move away to, I believe, it was either Arsenal or Spurs or a couple of other teams when he was doing really well for these guys. Um but yeah, you know, that was that was a typical Sam Allardyce signing. If it would have come through, I think to be fair, Inter were trying to get rid of get get him off the the, the wage book because I think his knees were gone by then, and he wasn't playing much of them, and he was on quite a big contract. But um, at that point, I think West Ham had a, a you know a, a sort of record of signing 
older, established players, shall we say. Yeah, when was this? This was 2014, is that yeah, right? coming up to the January window of 2015, yeah, and approach there. So how did you go from having a conversation with Robert Mancini's assistant? Uh, yeah, man, well, he's not Mancini's, he's not Mancini's, he's not Mancini's assistant, mate. It's, it's, it's the guy that actually managed his son and um, he worked on his behalf, well, worked with him. Right. Uh, and at that time, Mancini was at Inter Milan, hence we had access to the Inter Milan players. And I basically started working with him for the next window, so for that for that January window. And I was helping him because, not that my Italian's great, but he's uh, he wasn't very confident in his English to speak to, say, sport directors or respect to people at clubs here. Yeah, so I used to just do a lot of, uh, not translating, but just doing the talking on his behalf and learning the business that way around. And after seeing it, I realised it's not too different to what I do on the property side of things. It's just um, the product or, you know, the, the product in the middle is different. It's not a property for sale or for rent. You've got a player that's there. Uh, and... Um, yeah, move forward that way around. Okay, what? How would you define a football agent? What is it that you? What, what does your role encompass? Okay, it's an interesting question because as a football agent, it's um, stereotypically a lot of people ask you, "Oh, what are you a scout?" Or um, so my initial idea of working within the industry because I was working with somebody that was a little bit, you know, had a different background to me. Had been in football for ten years. It wasn't necessarily your stereotypical, uh, what you would imagine a football agent to be. Mine was, I was more uh, in line to do the brokering of deals. So um, working with agents who have players outside the UK to bring them into the UK. And that's what my first three and a half, four years of working within the industry was. I was basically brokering deals and working on different sides of football, really, uh, be that working on behalf of clubs or working on behalf of players, uh, intermediary activities, really. Um, and then, you know, because that wasn't my background, I didn't know it, I understood football, I was knowledgeable about football, but the football business side was completely new to me, so I wanted to learn it before I could actually say that I can add value to a specific player or what they do. Um, so... Over the last five years now, for yeah, five years that I've been in the industry, we now uh, have our own players that we have signed to the agency and stuff. But for the first three and a half, four years, I had no real interest in signing players for the agency ourselves. What you'd probably think the role of an agent is to actually manage players. We actually manage no players. We just worked on deals uh, to broker them from one place to the other uh, and being the agent in between. But like stereotypically, you'd say the role of an agent is to look after a player, to make sure the player's interests are looked after. He is getting the best he can do out of a football contract. And, you know, his best interests are looked after. That The only thing the player has to do is concentrate on the pitch and everything else is looked after by the agent and the team that the agent gets around him. Okay, Um all right. So, who was your first? Can you tell us some of the early high-profile deals that you brokered? Were there any in particular that we would have heard of? Um, probably the first 
uh, like we discussed this before coming to the podcast, my first real involvement was when I got approached uh, just randomly by somebody on LinkedIn about bringing some players to a tournament they were looking to do in India, uh, a futsal tournament. And I wasn't even too sure what futsal was at the time. And um, my PA at the time was Brazilian and through her through her contact base from Sao Paulo, I was then introduced to Marquinhos's cousin, and we went and uh, went out to Brazil thereafter. And we signed Falcao, who's like the Pele of futsal. Have you guys heard of uh, Falcao, the futsal player? I haven't. I'll be honest. No, you guys, you should guys jump on YouTube, have a have a watch of him, mate. The guy can do like manipulate that ball and do some crazy stuff with it. But um, yeah, so we went out to Brazil. We signed pretty much the whole futsal Brazilian national team for this tournament that was happening in India. We also met with uh, Rivaldo. Cafu that also, well, Rivaldo was meant to take part in it, but he couldn't because of injury. But we started off by brokering a lot of the players to go out there and play in that tournament in India. Uh, we also, Falco was really close friends with Deco. So I was introduced to Deco via Falco as well. So Deco went out there and played. So that was probably the first uh, intermediary brokering activity we've done as an agency. And then the following summer, no, not that first summer, the summer after, believe the summer of 2016 was when we done our first deal to the Premier League that was a striker called Lauren de Poitre, uh, Belgium international at the time. He had just won the Belgium League with Ghent, I believe. Yes, it was Ghent at the time. I was introduced to his agent via a, co- via a coach that was looking for employment in Asia. So he had reached out to me and then I said, look, he goes, look, there's this agent I work with in Belgium. Would you be interested in working with him? So we started that conversation that way around. And the summer before, so the summer of 2015, uh, Norwich were in the Premier League and they were quite interested in signing the boy. But then you understand that it's not as straightforward as you'd think if someone's interested, they like him, they, the, the, the boy's you know, doing really well in the league out there. I think that was the year that Ghent got to the Champions League knockout stages on the first time of appearing in the Champions League and he'd done well there as well. So, you know, everything ticked the box. He was a big physical unit to come do well in the Premier League. But in the end, uh, Norwich took way too long to get the deal done. And he actually got down to the stage where we were out in, in Belgium with the recruitment team uh, of Norwich speaking to respect to different people and they went to as deep as visit his old school or his old, you know, his first coaches to understand what the character of the player of the player was or as a boy was growing up. So, you know, the amount of research these teams actually put into uh, signing a player is incredible. Uh, but then they were just too slow. Porto came and bought him um, that summer. So he had a whole summer of not uh, playing much because Porto, you know, they stockpile players quite similar to you know, teams like uh, Manchester City or Chelsea that just buy everyone and then they have them out on loan and uh, stuff like that. But then we, the following summer, uh, Huddersfield, which was a shock to uh, see them go up that summer in that playoff final against Reading because you know, Reading and Yapstam's uh, uh, Reading team were 
overwhelming, uh, like there were favourites that no one expected Huddersfield to do what they've done and they got promoted and uh, we had spoken to Huddersfield and Reading both about the Poitra, um, that he was out in Porto, he hasn't played much, but you know, the perfect fit. And as soon as Huddersfield uh, got promoted, um, they were bang on the phone and said, look, this is a player that now we have a budget for. We wouldn't have had it if we were still in the championship and they've done the deal for um, four and a bit million pounds for him to come over from Porto. Cool, fantastic. All right, going back a second, this futsal tournament in India, it was that was that a big deal within India itself? Is that the first time it's happened? Is that a regular occurrence? Yeah, it was, yeah, that was the first time that it happened out in India. Um, it was something that was a little bit against the grain out there because it wasn't backed by the Ambani family or Reliance, as if to say so. I don't think it was ever going to be, you know, as big as what it should have been because it was against the the, the main people who, who run sport in India. Uh, but, you know, they had all the top people in there. They had Virat Kohli uh, involved as one of the ambassadors for it. They had Luis Figo also signed for it um, as the president. They had ARM on composing the music for it. You know, they, they, they really tried in a massive way. Uh, but again, the administration that was behind it and also, you know, the owners behind it, I don't think they fulfilled what they promised sort of thing, you know. They, um, and that's why I think they had a second season. I, I was out of it after the first season, mate. I'm not going to go into too much detail uh, of why and what, but after initially doing all the work that we've done on it, uh, we actually didn't even go out to the tournament in the end. Um, but, yeah, no, it was a really interesting concept. Uh, it was as if they were saying it's the IPL or the T20 or football. So that's their, that was their concept of bringing it to the larger audience out in South Asia and India. And, you know, they had... They had the Skulls, Giggs, all of these guys from Manchester United that had gone out there as well. Ronaldinho was also a big one that they had out there. So, you know, they, they had all the right people come in there and the tournament should have been a lot more successful than it, than it was. I would say it probably was a success with all the people that turned out for it, etc. But there should have been definitely more longevity in it if probably the right backers and the right sponsors were involved with the tournament. Okay. So coming back to the UK, so you've started brokering some deals. Is that how you started developing contacts? And so basically the question is, how did you start talking to football clubs? Actually, let me take that back a sec. So do... I guess there's occasions when football clubs come to you and say they're after players and other occasions when players say they'd like to go to a particular country. Is that how it works? Um, well, there's a, there's a couple of ways of, of working. So my contact base was made via a friend who had, had made a really good introduction to me. Somebody else, um, not, not, not the Italian guy, I, I was introduced to something called Y-Scout. I don't know if you guys have heard of that, but uh, Y-Scout's uh, a, a, you know, a, a football platform that captures 
every action. So most, 90% of actions that happen on the football pitch are at all different angles, all different videos. It works with sports code and different um, broadcasters, etc., to collate all the action together. It's, an, it's also an Italian company originally. It's just been taken over by Huddle uh, about a year and a half ago. But um, you know, I was introduced by, to the head of Y Scout because that's you know that's the program that I, I was advised that you know what what I should invest in, what I should get. And when I met the head of football of Y Scout. Uh, who's now the head of football for Huddle, actually, uh, a guy called Richard Trafford. He, um, you know, he met me and he said, "Look, I think um, you're fresh or breath air. I think some, you know, some, there's a, a big need for professionalism within the industry as an agent. And you know, I'm going to share a document with you. And um, the guy, you know, he had a database of um, players. Uh, sorry, a database of CEOs, data analysts, uh, sport directors." Uh, football clubs from the Premier League down to the National League. And uh, he very kindly at that time shared that with me. So, yeah, that was pretty much put on my plate, really. Okay, fantastic. <clears throat> and so, okay, what? so in terms of what you do, what how, what does a typical day look like for you in regards to to footballers and being a football agent? Uh, or a typical week. The day, a typical day, week is a lot of it's doing just on the phone, speaking to clubs on a regular basis, finding out how you know for how they because everyone's working one or two windows ahead. No, you're never going to sign a player at a club uh, at that you know. It's very rarely you're going to sign a player. If I offer a player a player to a club, say. Uh, this this month or next month to sign him in January, it probably is not going to be a deal that transpires or happens uh, unless they're really, really desperate and they've gone through 15 of their choices and they've all fallen through and this guy's, uh, this player becomes an option. Normally, Sounds like West Ham strategy to me. Ah, see, West Ham, West Ham's an interesting, interesting stories about West Ham. Um, it's a club that they've really, the owners there, they get a lot of flack, but they've really backed uh, the Pellegrini. manager. They don't, yeah, no, well, Pellegrini, but it was not Pellegrini that was making the signings there. It was his right-hand guy, a guy called Mario Hosulios. Uh, at the time, the sport director. Um, again, you know, there was a very good chance of uh, the time that you guys sign. I say you guys, because I know both of you guys are West Ham fans, but when you signed uh, the guy from Lazio, Anderson, uh, for me, the deal that should have happened was uh, Marek Hamsic at the time. And that was very close to happening, but it just wasn't the deal for the sport director to do. Unfortunately, in football, with clubs, there's a lot of different agendas that go on with signings, etc. Uh, so when we put a player to a club, I'll ensure that it goes to two or three different people within that club, and that way round, we'll see what the answers are from that each well, are from respective people within the club, uh, and that way around, I can then report back to the agent I'm working with or the player to say, look, this is the feed because the role of an agent is really simple. I believe uh, this is coming back to my property side of things. You you've got a player that probably fits say the mid to the bottom end of the Premier League so there's no point of offering that player to the top six clubs because he's not of that level but everything else that points towards it says this player is from 
that say you've got your top six or top seven clubs and then everyone down from there to the clubs that have come up or like you know say clubs eight to 20 that that player fits their remit or you know it's not up to you to make that decision you you, you offer that player to all of those say 12 clubs or something along those lines and then you know you get their feedback back from the sport director or the manager or the scout, whoever you've spoken to, or you might be the chief executive, depending on who the person is you're speaking about, respective club. And then you're able to then feedback that information to the player or his agent who you're working with to tell them, look, yep, they've said they're interested, they're not interested, he's on a short list, yep, they like him, and um, you work for it that way around. Okay. And so does what changes during a transfer window? Is it desperation on part of clubs or? Uh, you'd have to probably ask somebody at a club, but in my opinion, what changes uh, during the transfer window? So I'm trying to understand your question properly. When you say what changes during the transfer window, what do you mean? Uh, to be honest, I was talking more about your, your day-to-day or week-to-week activities. Okay, so... What changes for me during the transfer window is then you're consumed by whatever potential deal that you're working on and getting that deal over the line. And, you know, you live, breathe that deal all day, all night, and you're disposable for that deal to happen. So you don't know when the call is going to come through for it, um, when you're going to need to go and negotiate with uh say the sport director or the C, the, the CEO uh, of a club to get that done because obviously like I referred to earlier on there's two parts of football right you've got the football side and then you've got the business side so you a player could take all the right boxes for the manager for the scout for the sport director they could then come and meet the player and the agent and you know say look agree agree that you know that's definitely where they want to take the, you know, that's definitely where the player wants to go to and that's definitely the player, that, that that's their number one target. But then it's down to the business side where the agent uh, needs to negotiate with the chief executive chairman or the CEO of a club to actually get the finances done on the deal. And a lot of times in deals, that's where it falls over for one reason or the other, you know. It might be due to what the club value the player at, vice versa, what the player believes his, his value is and the club's not meeting it, or it could be between uh, club to club uh, where they cannot, you know, agree a transfer fee or the way the deal's broken down. But other than that, on a day-to-day basis, uh, during the window, it changes because you're actually working on deals at the time but like I said the legwork for a deal to happen in that window is done previous to that window happening so you know that okay these this one of these two players or three players that I'm working on are the players that are going to be the concentration for this month or for this six or seven week window whatever it may be do you okay so Agents have a bad rep for several reasons. One of them is because people's perceptions of footballers always wanting more money and trying to get a better deal. And a lot of the time people think that stems from the agent. What What's your take on that? I mean, is a player agitating for a transfer a good thing or does that mean it's more work for you? How do you see that? 
Okay, so the first, the perception of people, of the general public kind of agents. Uh, so obviously, a lot of the general public are normally fans and they have an emotional attachment to a club. So when you've got a player that you love, you, you know, you've got a godlike status at a club, when he says, it's time for me to move on uh, or I want to change, the, you know, straight away, the club's going to, the, the, sorry, the fans are not going to like that because they're comfortable with him being there because it brings them happiness, it brings them joy, sometimes sadness, whatever the emotions are. So it's never nice when someone asks for a change. No one likes change. But that's, again, important why the agent is there then because it's not down to the player then to take, to make that happen or to deal with the, you know, the whole criticism that may come with um, them trying to move on from a club or a club coming to buy that player. Again, I think it's important that uh, agents are there because the, the client, the player should just be uh, concentrating on the football side of things. Sometimes it can be difficult when there's a lot of speculation or a lot of talk or treatment from the club or the fans have changed towards that player so to support the player through that but you know it's just the same as I suppose um, you know when you're buying or selling a property you know you need an agent there in the middle if you didn't have the agent there you wouldn't be able to do the transaction because if a player was moving to another club um, and the player was negotiating his own deals, that player is a good football player. He's not a business person. He doesn't understand a contract. He doesn't have the professionals around him to get what's best for him. At the end of the day, a football club is a business. The football club is only going to be looking out for itself. So an agent is needed to make sure the player is protected when they're signing a contract. And in terms of movement, et cetera, you know, with everything, there's a food, as there is a food chain uh, in the animal kingdom, as they say, and it's the same with football clubs, you know, once you get to a certain level, um, if you're a club that's uh, a Premier, you're you're a player in a Premier League team, you know, you aspire to playing international football, you aspire to winning trophies, you aspire to playing at the highest level. You aspire to earning the best money you can do for you and your family because a football career can be very short also. You know, there's no guarantees that uh, a player can have the time to develop into a Cristiano Ronaldo or a Harry Kane or a Gareth Bale. But these are three players I give examples of as such because they've worked damn hard at their craft and dedicate their whole lives to being the best they can be. They were very talented, but they weren't gifted as much as, say, a Lionel Messi was, who was just a, a freak of talent, as you say. These guys were, have worked their backsides off and dedicated everything towards them becoming the best of the best, becoming relentless in their pursuit of greatness, you know? Uh, so again, um, agent, that's where the agent comes in. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question or gives you a little bit more insight. It definitely gives us more insight. Thanks for that. Um, so, okay. So do transfers normally, not normally, do they start because the player wants a move or 
the club wants to cash in on him because he's had a good season and they need to, you know, some clubs, but like a club that we were very close to doing a deal with last summer. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to mention the player, uh, but is a Premier League club. And we had the presentation in Paris from where the player was playing at the time and was there. And they tried to sign him the year before, but the boy signed a pro contract and stayed at his team. And he had a lot bigger clubs looking at him, say the top echelon of clubs uh, looking at him. And he wasn't very interested in going to a mid-table Premier League team at the time. Um, but then he signed his pro contract at the club he was at. Um that, that season, he played 15 times for the team that he was in. It was in Paris. So you can work out which team that was. Um, but whatever the boy done, he was never given a fair go of it. He could have had an eight or nine out of ten game. But the next game, a star would come and play in his position. Uh, so as a younger player, he understood for him to progress, he needed to step down a couple of levels uh, to you know to really fulfil what he could do in his career. So this boy's then agreed to say, okay, look, I'll come, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to the club that was interested in me the summer before. Um, so we, we were in Paris with the club, etc. They had this presentation they'd done for him and you know, they, they, they spoke to the family, they spoke to us, they presented to us, they showed how much they had followed the boy since he was an under-16 international all the way to he was 19 at the time. They'd followed his progression for the last four or five years. They'd, you know, they they had seen the progression that he had made. Uh, they actually told us that they had watched him on about 22 different times, about 14 times live, the other times on Scout, other times on TV. And it was like a traffic light system to when, you know, like, was it a green, amber, or a red performance? Red being no good, uh, amber, green, and he had like out of the 21 times, or he had like 16 or 17 uh, green performances, which was incredible. So they, they definitely wanted him. But at the end of that uh, particular uh, presentation they made, they had Ginny Wijnaldum on one side and Musa Sissoko on the other side and uh, that were just about to play in the Champions League final. And they said, look, these are both players that have come through our club. So we understand you coming to us is going to be part of your journey that goes on to a bigger club again. So everyone knows what their roles are within this. Like they understood that their role would be as a stepping stone. So if they bought the player for X, they would give him an opportunity to play in the first team. And they were hoping that he does really well. So then they know that in the future, if they say for argument's sake, bought him for 10 or 15 million, that hopefully that player then becomes a player that they can sell on for a profit, be at 30, 40 million in the future. So, you know, that. So depending on where you are as a club and where you are financially, uh, you know, a lot of the deals are instigated also by clubs. Uh, it's not just players asking for moves. Um, it's, it's a mixture of everything, really. It's a mixture of clubs uh, trying to move players on, players asking for moves. It's, it takes, you know, if someone's under contract, and you know, they, you know, you've got this, you've got the case of Ozil at Arsenal at the moment. You know, I'm sure there's been clubs that have come in for him or whatever, but 
why should he go anywhere? Then that the club have taken a stance against him that he's not going to be part of any squad, anything. Um, but you know, he's earning his money, and you know, he'll sit it out. Okay, um, so uh, so the the term uh, tapping up gets banded about. Now, what's your take on that in terms of what really happens? I think tapping up is pretty much what really happens. Like, there's no way anyone's going to pursue something until they know via somebody, the agent or the player or the, the club that the player is playing at, there's a potential for doing a deal because, you know, or they know there's a buyout clause in there, whatever it may be, there's got to be, you know, there's, there's no fire without some smoke, right? There's no one, no one's going to go and follow up on something that there's no chance of happening because all of the guys that are working in the respective clubs, they're under a lot of pressure to deliver. And, you know, because they're either answering to the manager or to the chairman or whatever, uh, or to the, the board. And, yeah, yeah, it happens. It happens. It happens. That's the way. Uh, that's just just the way it is. That's the way it works. Okay. Um, so, is it, how about your clients? Are there any clients that you can tell us about? Any high-profile ones which we would know about? Um, in terms of players that are are high-profile ones, um, we've got a couple of players that we're working that uh, with. So we've got a player that's. Uh, a striker of the Albanian national team currently playing at Sturm Graz. Um, he's looking, he's 29. He's been part of that Albanian national team for, for the past 10, 12 years. He's been part of it since uh, he was young. He's 29. He's, he's now looking for a move out to Asia uh, because he knows that, you know, he's coming towards the end of his career. He wants, he wants, he wants a good move now uh, for that. So he, We've got somebody like we've got a couple of other established players that we're working with on the brokering side of things, and then we've also got some players that are up and coming players that are in academies in category one academies, Premier League teams that are either going to be moving on to professional contracts or to the you know, moving on to their second year of scholarships and stuff like that. But again, these players are under 18. Uh, we're not, I'm not going to mention their names or anything like that. So, again, like, you know, if you want to know about our journey, what we do, except for the players we work with and what we're about, um, we've got our social media platform uh, that you can go and follow and uh, any, of those, any of that stuff will be all disclosed on there, really. Okay, fair enough. What is your social media platform? So we've got One Click Sports Management on Facebook and Instagram and OC Sports Management on Twitter. So what was the Twitter one? Uh, OC Sports Management. OC. So just, well, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Fine. Um, before I move on, Z, any questions at the moment? I've got a couple, uh, Priyash. Um, first one, what I really want to know is like, how long did it take for you to get comfortable in the world of football intermediary um i guess i'm talking from a sense of someone who's come from outside the game even though we, have, we all have an interest in football uh but being immersed in that kind of the world of football business and secondly uh as someone who's desi as well being involved in, in in mainstream football um what's been the kind of reception that you received and how, how long did it take to get 
respect in the game for uh, decision makers at clubs to pick up the phone to you and say, yeah, we want to deal with you and talk to you about transactions or, or players? Okay, so firstly, um, I'll answer the second question first because in terms of being a desi within the industry, um, I think I've got a very distinctive name that people probably don't come across very often within the football world. And my size and my stature and, and my look, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm six foot three, I'm, I'm an Asian lad. Like, you know, don't get many uh, Asians within the football industry per se, like, you know, again, I'm going to reference back to Scout. So Scout had a yearly uh, or twice a year biannual conference where all the best clubs around the globe would get together on like a speed dating sort of um, concept where you pre-booked appointments to meet with sport directors of Premier League, Serie A, Belgium League, La Liga, you've got football clubs all around the globe uh, all sitting there at respective desks and then you go around meeting them and having a chat with them. Um, it's really intense. You have like between three and five minutes per desk and you're moving on but then you really stick out like a sore thumb because there's not many Asians that work within that industry and again you know the respect that the clubs give you etc it comes down to a couple of things really firstly is what's the product within your hand that's what gives you respect more than anything else because you know as you can imagine there's hundreds uh, of people that probably try to contact these guys on a daily basis, um, trying to offer them players, etc. So it's, you've got to be, it's got, it's, you've got to have the right quality of player within your hand to speak to uh, to a club. Uh, that comes down to you know your work yourself to have an understanding of what player matches which club, if that makes sense. Um, and, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll see that sometimes at the time there'll, there'll be people at clubs that say, no, 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 that he's not good enough or we don't think he's any good. And, then, you know, a couple of years down the line, you see that player not necessarily at that club, but playing at that level. So, um, yeah, no, um, you, you've got early on sort of respect. But then again, it's just a case of, it's, it's hard work, man. It's really, really... You, in this industry, you could do 80, 70, 80% of the job well and you could get it all done, but then until the deal doesn't get over the line on the transfer side of things, it could just all be a waste of time. So, it, 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 you know, it's been testing. It's very different to what I've been uh, uh, used to. But um, now, uh, five years into it, uh, where I've built a team of people around us that, you know, we, I know that now I've got a team around me that makes professionals better. I've got, you know, I've got, I've got a strength and conditioning coach that works with players outside the football club. I've got uh, a guy at something called Touch Tweener uh, that's worked with some of the best players. He's probably the most successful player that he worked with and he gave him the best time was uh, Robin Van Persie. Uh, so uh, Errol is like a touch therapist, like massage therapy, uh, ancient Chinese. Um, it's an ancient Chinese touch therapy uh, service that he gives and you know, it allows your muscles and your body to be at optimum 
uh, throughout the season. So we've got the strength and conditioning, you've got the touch tweener, we've got, uh, I've got, we've got a technical football coach that works with some of the top players around the globe um, who works with our players. Um, you've got a lady that does football yoga. So we've got a whole team of people around me uh, at One Click Sports Management that make players better. And this is all done while they're at clubs. So, you know, on a weekly or fortnightly basis, outside their football club, they'll go and do uh, the work with our people to make sure they're, you know, they're doing the extra work to be the best that they can be. Cool. Zee, did you have a second question? I think it was just like, uh, I think my second question was the first question was actually uh, about how long it take for you to be comfortable in that world of football intermediary. Oh, well, you know, um, I, like, like I said right at the beginning of the conversation, I was speaking to sport directors and uh, senior club officials right from the get-go because, you know, I was working on, with somebody else and I was in the main sort of negotiations uh, on his behalf. So I was doing that right from the offset and coming from um, the, the, the the property side of the property well you know it's just once you realize there's people on the other side um i was comfortable with it from the get-go really and then like i said the the, the respect and how seriously they take you it all comes down to what you're coming to them with um because if you've got something that's attractive then you know, they're going to give you respect they're going to call you back they're going to come back to you there'll be times that you send a player over you hear nothing back because it's a lot of interest and you understand that I know you say you speak to people at quite a high level at various football clubs, etc. Is there ever a, the question asked as to the fact you're there as an Asian or the lack of Asians that are generally seen at the higher echelons of football? Um, not really, because I, it's not really a thought that really crosses my mind when I'm going into any sort of conversations with these clubs, because I'm going there with a very particular sort of, uh, for a very particular purpose, to discuss a player or to discuss uh, an opportunity that we've got to do with the with, with the respective club. Um, I, I haven't really discussed it with anyone at football clubs. I've talked about potential partnerships and relationships that we could build with uh, India itself um, uh, because, you know, so football's like the second fastest growing game out there. I think under 40, it's even probably taken over uh, cricket, I think, because everyone's grown up watching Premier League football out there. Uh, and that's why probably the Indian Super League struggles a little bit because where everyone out in India has watched Premier League football, when they want to watch the ISL, the Indian Super League, they were expecting the, a similar sort of level of football there. Um, and it's and it just isn't at the moment. So it's probably more equivalent to like League One uh, in England, League One, League Two sort of level. So, um, well. Have you done any business with any clubs in the Indian Super League or any players out there? Um, no, we haven't. We haven't actually completed any deals out there. We've got good relationships with a couple of clubs out there. We've uh, 
um, introduced players um, who haven't come to fruition. When, Mo, when Momo Sissoko moved to Pune, uh, we had a slight involvement there because when he was going to start, that his agent was already speaking to them, but then I had spoken to the CEO as well. And um, I was speaking to Momo because I got a few things sorted out for him when he was out in India itself because he's, uh, he's a mutual friend from one of my other contacts from Paris, but uh, no real business out uh, in India, no. Okay. Well, our main concentration is uh, working at working in England, working with uh, you know the, the league clubs uh, over here. Really, just that curiosity. Do in any kind of capacity, do you see many Asians when you're dealing with clubs? Are uh, working within the club? Yeah. Um. Yeah. Well. Um, Arsenal have got um, a couple of Asians right at the top of the chain yeah. there. So there's a guy called Varun there um, who I've not dealt with. I know Edu Gaspar quite well. Um, I know Edu's assistant. So, and then there was Hus Fami who does all the contract negotiations. I think he's just left or he's about to leave as part of the new restructure there at the club. Um, there's loads and loads of uh, doctors that are Asian at Premier League football clubs. Uh, so they're involved there. Um, but yeah, no, again, there's not, obviously there's no real Asian uh, managers or uh, there's no Asian sport directors that I deal with, but you know I think will come. I think it's the, the, they've got to be more players that start coming into first teams, etc. At the pro level, uh, national league, uh, sorry, at, uh, Premier League, Championship club. You've got you've got a few a few boys breaking those barriers. You've got Jan Danda at Swansea doing really well. But again, like right from the offset, myself, I've never really been. It's not been, I have not seen it as I'm Asian, so I'm here to make that change for Asians within football or anything like, anything like that. Because for me, it's just I'm here to provide a professional service. We've just uh, signed uh, a young player that's uh, of Asian descent. Uh, he, he was out of the States for the last six years. And, you know, um, the boy's work ethic, he's. Um, technical ability, you know, he's, he's going to be doing some big bits. So he's an Asian player that we've got. He's our he's our first real Asian player that uh, we're working with, and um, we're going to see how we get on. He's just getting himself ready uh, to start going to clubs now. So watch this space. His name's uh, Zidane Mia, and um, um, we're, we're going to be doing some work with him. Sorry, is that the player Zidane Mia? That's it. Yeah, he's a Man United, Zidane, is that right? Yeah. No, that's Zidane Iqbal. I know Zidane and his father. I know Zidane and his father quite well, actually. I spoke to his father not too long ago. But uh, Zidane Iqbal's at uh, Man United in the under-18s. Only reason I know that because we've got a couple of boys that were at Man United until this season, this summer, just gone, that were his teammates. Okay. It'll be interesting just to see your experience with Zidane Mia as you're, as you try and get him into a club and just seeing what kind of feedback, etc., is received. Yeah, definitely. Uh, maybe we can update you uh, in a, in a couple of months time uh, and let you know how we get on because basically 
He came back from the States last year. He was playing for Bromley in the National League, but then lockdown happened and then he got himself injured. And Zidane is somebody that I met at the Asian Football Awards about five years ago when he was first gone out to Dallas. Met him and his dad. I was introduced by one of my ex, uh, well, one of my, one by a mutual friend. And uh, we you know, kind of sort of followed his journey. And then now that he's back in England, his dad was following what we were doing. And he got in contact and said, look, I want you to represent our son. And, uh, you know, me and Zidane are now working to uh, get him into a professional football over here. Okay, fantastic. Any more questions, Z? No more questions for me, but it's been fascinating to hear about um, your journey, Priyash. And I think one observation I'd make is, if I didn't know you were Asian, you sound like someone who knows the football business side of things. And I think that's ultimately what we want to prove first, is that we do know the game. Exactly that, matey. Exactly that. It's like for me, being yeah. Asian or orange or purple, whatever colour you may be, it's about what you know about the industry, and there's no shortcuts to it. You know, I, I, I'm not a player. I'm not a player's brother, uncle. I haven't played. I'm not an ex-player. You know, I, it's been the hard way that we've had to come up within the industry, but it's, it just comes down to what you have. You know, what quality you bring to the table. You know. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, skin colour, ethnicity, etc., should be inconsequential. Unfortunately, we know it isn't for many Asians, and it no, has been. Not. Um, but it's. I think we've meant one of you two mentioned it. It's about it's about visibility. If people can see Asians playing football, then that will have a massive impact on on coaches and scouts being aware that yes, Asians are a possibility. If they see Asians at the higher end in terms of on the administration or the management side. Again, I'll have a bigger impact on people being able to see, yes, there is a possibility, there is a pathway. So... I, I think a lot of it's got to do with, like, you know, second, third generation Asians probably, uh, you know, are sort of age or uh, guys younger than us who are going to have kids now. And, you know, we're British. We're, we're, we're born and bred in, in England or in Britain somewhere. And, you know, we, are, we, we're of South Asian descent. And, you know, I'm really proud of my Indian roots, but I'm also British. And I'm proud of those roots also. And for me, uh, my both my both my kids are pushed to do not pushed to do sport they're encouraged let me rephrase that uh before we have the child services on the other line or whatever uh but you know i encourage my kids to do whatever sport they're interested in and like i've got daughters and my older daughter is really good at cricket she's her ball and eye coordination uh has been good from the age of say back two or three and that's something that she's been honing since then and we're going to be looking to for she was meant to have joined a a, a club you know uh, a, a top club here in Essex uh, this summer but obviously with, lot, with, with you know the pandemic hasn't worked out this year but she'll be doing it next year and it's just about the encouragement to say look sports is a future like you know and it needs to be encouraged yep 100% excellent Priyash, thank you very much for your time. No problem at all. Pleasure for having me.